So before we start the sermon today, uh, a quick word of warning. I forgot to do this last week, and I know we had some new families with us last week that were a little surprised. Uh, Today and for the next few weeks to come, we are in a series called Sexuality, Gender, and the Way of Jesus. And so, fair warning uh, to those that are in the room today, if you have kids or teenagers with you, um, I will do my best to preach and speak in a very God-honoring way, but we are talking about subject matter uh, that can be pretty candid and frank. So, um, there's a reason why we send our kids downstairs, uh, have some age-appropriate instruction and teaching and engagement. Uh, But all are welcome to stay and be a part, but just know that we may have some material we talk about today that would be in that vein. And then also, in case I forget to mention it later, I have put together a book table over here. Those are not for you to take. Uh, They're mine. Um, (laughs) But uh, these are some of the resources that I have been looking at and reading in preparation for this. And so you may want to snap a picture. You're like, hey, what's that book? So you can look and you can pick them up and thumb through them and look at them. Um, But yeah, don't steal from my book table. and I'll have some more listed too in, the, in weeks to come for you if you are curious and want to learn and read more. So, having started a couple weeks ago with 1 Corinthians 6 and a vision for human sexual flourishing, and then last week, having looked at the thing beneath the thing, in the way that Jesus talked about and looked to authority and Um, a worldview that stood underneath the way he answered life's questions. Today, I want to ask a particular question before the next few weeks we dig into some more very specific topics and themes. But here's the question that I want to ask. How does Jesus deal with sinners? How does Jesus deal with those who are confused? with those who are questioning? How does Jesus deal with people who are struggling with unwanted sexual behavior? Or to maybe put it a different way, how does Jesus, sorry, I didn't change that slide, so uh, ignore the right side of the slide. Go ahead and go back to it. Here's the question, how does Jesus respond to the sexually broken? How does Jesus respond to the sexually broken? Because the reason why I think this question is really, really important is because if we don't know what to expect when we bring some of the most deepest, intimate parts of ourselves to Jesus, if we don't know what he's like, if we don't know how he responds, we will probably hold back or run away and not bring those parts of us fully to him. It's one thing to learn the teachings of Jesus. It's quite another to encounter the person of Jesus. I think they both go together. But as uh, one speaker, her name is Brenna Blaine, once said is that we should not demand people to live by the standards of Christ before they've met the person of Christ. And so sometimes we love to emphasize the teaching and the doctrine and the standards or the morals or the rules or the regulations devoid from the person of Jesus. And again, I think they go together. But what is Jesus like? If you bring the fullness of who you are to him, 
how will he respond? So turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. How does Jesus respond to the sexually broken, which, by the way, it's all of us. So there's a story I want to share from Luke 7. It's a story about a woman, most likely a prostitute, a complex story. This woman who crashes a dinner party of Jesus. And the story speaks to the deep places of our fears. The story speaks to the deep places of our insecurities, to the deep places of our brokenness. With hope that maybe Jesus is going to respond to those things differently than others have or will. Here's Luke 7. I think I've got these slides in English, Spanish, and Swahili. And again, the Swahili is Google Translate, so there may be some lazy wives that pop up in this too. We'll see how it goes. Luke 7, verse 36, here's the story. It says, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus, asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now clearly this story, as we begin to enter into it, it has shock value. Probably more shock value than we give it credit especially if you've heard it before or read it before. You're like, yeah, 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 this is when Jesus deals with the woman at the party. Like, yeah, I know this one. But if you were in the room that night, this would have been scandalous. There would have been high tension in the room. So Jesus has accepted the invitation of a Pharisee to come over for dinner. And really, that in and of itself has some drama attached to it. For Jesus to go and hang out with this religious leader and to be in his world, to be in his home, to be with him, that has some built-in intrigue because at this point in time, Jesus has this growing reputation, growing with them, the Pharisees, but also kind of a battle brewing between the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and Jesus and his disciples. But the tension between those groups of people, that's not even the main event of the evening. So while this unlikely pair of people are eating, they are reclining at the table in customary fashion when out of nowhere, a woman shows up. An unnamed woman in the the story, maybe to protect her identity. An uninvited guest, like she is truly a dinner crasher here. She was not invited. She's clearly not welcomed in this space. And then Luke, the author, describes her as a woman of the city. 
a woman of the city. Now, that does not mean that she liked urban shopping, public transportation, and the opera. Because he qualifies it, a woman of the city, and he adds on this phrase, who was a sinner. That's a very specific category that was used in the ancient world. Again, many scholars agree that most likely she was a, a prostitute. I think it's fair to say that her story was complex, a mixture of sexual brokenness and sexual sin, wounds, trauma, sin, and shame. So can you just imagine the scene? Jesus is already eating at a Pharisee's house. You're like, how's that going to go down? And while he's eating with this established, legalistic, religious ruler, this woman comes breaking in to the meal. She comes bursting in. They're reclining at table. They didn't eat at tables like we do. They were reclining, which most likely meant that he was laying, Jesus would have been on the floor laying on his side, on his left arm, eating with his right hand, with his feet outstretched behind him. And this woman comes rushing in, verse 38, can you picture it? She stands behind Jesus and Jesus' feet that are there stretched out on the floor, and she begins weeping. She wets his feet with her tears. And then maybe embarrassed that she's gotten his feet wet, she wipes Jesus' feet with her hair, which again, culturally risque for a woman to be in public with her hair down. Very provocative. Cultural taboo let alone to Jesus, let alone in the house of a Pharisee. Not only, though, tears, wiping with her hair. The text says that she continues by kissing the feet of Jesus, and she anoints his feet with the ointment that she carries, this alabaster flask. Like, what is happening? If you were a fly on the wall, if you were another guest at the table, our eyes would have been real big. What's Jesus going to do? Now again, the scene, it sparks all sorts of reactions, judgment from the Pharisee. It, it uh, sparks some teaching from Jesus, a parable in fact, to reply to the Pharisee's reaction. And after the parable is told, Jesus follows through with a pretty clear instruction, an admonition. But rather than walking through all of it today, I want to focus in on this story with three lenses as we look at it. If we can go to the next slide. I want to talk about this story in terms of sin, shame, and desire. Sin, shame, and desire. Because I think those are three themes that we have to wrestle with if we want to make sense of how Jesus engages sexual brokenness. Now this may feel counterintuitive, but I'm going to start at the end of the story and work our way backwards to talk about sin, shame, and desire. So let's start with sin, which is probably our least favorite place to start. 
Look at verses 47 and 48. So at kind of the tail end of this dinner and this interruption and this engagement and the tears and the wiping and the kissing and the anointing and the, the, the reaction and the teaching, at the end of all of that, at the end of this, this dinner party, Jesus speaks these words. Jesus says, therefore I tell you her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. In verse 48, he then, instead of just talking about her, speaks to her, and he says to her, your sins are forgiven. Now, what makes this story, I think, remarkable is all the stuff that we'll get to. Well, actually, this all is remarkable in some ways. I think that most everyone would agree that everything happening in this story is very audacious and bold and courageous. It's beautiful. I also just want to point out, though, that it would not be lost on us that in this conversation between Jesus and this woman, there still is a conversation about sin. Jesus says your sins are forgiven, but he also has the authority and the audacity to speak to her and say, there are some things in your life that are less than God's best. There are things in your life that are less than the way it ought to be. And he calls it sin. Jesus doesn't bring shalom to this woman Jesus doesn't bring healing to this woman simply by dismissing her life or her activity or what's gone on in her past or by redefining it or recategorizing her problems away, which could be possible. He could have done that. He could have just said, oh yeah, well, it's no big deal. No, he, he says there's something happening in your life and story that is actually sin, and sin needs forgiveness. But the good news is that I've come to bring forgiveness to you. In our current age, our cultural age, the category of naming something as sin is increasingly taboo. We don't like to talk about sin. I just want to remind us if we're going to follow the way of Jesus, we have to be able to name sin and deal with sin the way that God has offered to deal with sin, and that is through forgiveness, through the work of Jesus. It's popular right now in the name. I get get the impulse in the name of being kind and loving or accepting. There's, there's a movement to lower standards or to change standards or to redefine things so that we don't feel as bad about it. There's a sense, and I, I feel it myself when I talk to other people, is who are you to say that how I live or what I do is wrong? Who are you to say right or wrong? Again, this is back to this expressive individualism that we live in. What's your truth? Well, you do your truth, I do my truth. And as long as your truth doesn't bump up against my truth, I don't really care. You do you, I do me. And do whatever you feel. Whatever is most true to yourself, do that. That's the era we live in. So again, I, and, and I know, I know I'm navigating the tensions here, and I know that, that many people, especially Christians or pastors or Jesus followers, have used the category of sin in the Bible to beat people up in very harmful ways. But again, in following the way of Jesus, we must not be afraid to name sins. 
that God defines as sin. So Jesus seems to be able to uphold a very deep sense of the law and the divine ideal, and in a perfect expression of love, to be able to call out sin. Now again, the way that he does that, which we'll talk about today, is important, but I don't think they have to be at odds with each other. So Jesus said himself, his own words, that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He did not come to throw out the law, but to embody it and fulfill it. He doesn't advocate for a rewriting of the law, but rather something in his life and death and resurrection has fulfilled the law. Jesus isn't afraid, as we talked about last week, to point back, Matthew 19, to point back to Genesis 1 and 2. And so again, we'll go back to this, that in in any conversation about humanity and sexual expression, Jesus unashamedly goes back to the concept of him making humanity male and female in his image. And the concept of male and female being united together in one flesh union is the beautiful reality of marriage. And that's what sexuality, sex, has been given as a gift to be experienced in. Sex is God's idea, divinely created to be expressed in a loving union between a man and a woman in covenant marriage. Jesus upholds the historic, biblical, Christian sexual ethic. And so he has no problem looking at this woman with loving authority and saying that she's sinned. Not to condemn her, but to bring healing and freedom to her. She has strayed from God's holy standard, from his good creation design. So again, I'm not going to spend all day today naming off what are all the sins, but there are many deviations from God's creation design for a one-flesh male-female union in covenant marriage. Premarital sexual activity is a sin. Extramarital sexual activity is a sin. Homosexual sexual activity is a sin. Heterosexual sexual activity is a sin outside of marriage. Sexual morality is a sin. Adultery is a sin. Pornography is a sin. Rape is a sin. Bestiality is a sin. Like, again, there's, there are things that are outside of God's intent in the covenant union of marriage. And again, I would say we all fall short We all stand in need of God's grace. And I'm so thankful that this story ends with Jesus looking her in the eyes and saying, your sins are forgiven. Sin does not get the last word. Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, gets the last word against our sin. And again, I know where this goes in terms of questions around same-sex attraction, in terms of what is marriage. We'll talk more about some of these things in the weeks to come. But one thing I have been really, I think, inspired by and encouraged by are many people, maybe a growing minority of people today, who experience same-sex attraction 
who are following Jesus, who are willing to say, I'm willing to live a life that honors the teaching of Jesus, and even willing to say, I'm willing to be celibate in my pursuit of following Jesus. There's some authors, teachers, Wesley Hill, Sam Albury, who experience same-sex attraction as Christians, where it hasn't been, quote, fixed or prayed away, or the demon cast out of. And they're pursuing to follow Jesus, and they found him to be more beautiful, more compelling. So, all that to say, I think we must be careful not to explain away our sin redefine our concepts of brokenness on our own terms and actually miss out on what needs to be addressed. And again, the best news of this dinner party is the words of Jesus that say it's possible for our sins to be forgiven. It is good news. But it's very easy to beat up people in the process of dealing with sin, which is why I want to explore the other categories too. Let's talk about shame. When this woman suddenly and unexpectedly crashes Jesus' dinner party, did you notice how the Pharisee responded? The Pharisee responded to this woman and to Jesus with utter contempt and condemnation. Actually, if you read his words, his words are laced with shame. Look at verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this whole thing going down, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. So the Pharisee, he both condemns Jesus and he condemns the woman. He first condemns Jesus and says, if he really was a prophet, he would have known better and he should have stayed away from her. He also condemns the woman with words of shame. Do you know the difference between guilt and shame? And we've talked about this in times past, but I'll reinforce this again. Go to the next slide. Guilt, I'm, I'm borrowing this definition from John Michael Cusick. Guilt is the conviction we feel when we have violated some standard when we have done wrong. It's, it's the conviction we feel, go ahead, sorry, the conviction we feel when we have violated some standard, when we have done wrong, but shame, however, is I am wrong. Not just I've done wrong, but I am wrong. Shame is a feeling that we are defective, flawed, bad, or worthless. The focus is not on what a person has done, but on who that person is. It focuses on one's self. And don't you hear that in the Pharisees' words? It's not just, hey, do you know what she's done, Jesus? It's, do you know what kind of woman she is, Jesus? It's just heaping shame on her. Not just pointing out guilt, but like, she is flawed. She is defective. She is worthless. Therefore, then, the Pharisee's reason is, if she really is that kind of person, Jesus, you need to stay away from her. Don't let her touch you. Keep your distance from her. This is why shame often leads to isolation. 
Because when you feel that you are wrong and you feel like you are worthless and you have no value and that you're dirty and that no one ever wants to be around you, you separate yourself and you end up in deeper places and darker places alone. Maybe you felt shame before. My guess is we all have. Those who struggle with pornography often feel deep shame. Those who have been abused often feel deep shame. Those who have sexually violated others often feel deep shame. Those who have been violated feel deep shame. Those who act out in unwanted sexual behavior feel shame. Those who have had affairs feel shame. So what does Jesus do? This is really important for us to see. Yes, at the end, he talks about sin. He names sin. In love, I believe, he calls out sin, offers forgiveness. But before we get there, does Jesus go along and play the shame game? Huh? No, he doesn't. Does he reinforce all the religious stereotypes and the pharisaical judgment over her? No. He doesn't say, ah, it's no big deal. He doesn't say, ah, we all mess up from time to time. What's a little sex anyway? Jesus doesn't do that, but he also deals with her shame in a very different way. Jesus decimates shame. The Pharisee Pharisee says, because of who she is, you shouldn't even let her touch you. The Pharisees are advocating for a holiness by distance concept, holiness by avoidance. If you're really holy, then you'll stay away from all those bad, distorted, broken, messy people. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus draws near. He draws near this woman who carries deep shame. He draws near the woman when everyone else says, get away from her. The woman interrupts Jesus. She touches Jesus. She wipes her hair on him. She kisses his feet. I'm sorry, but feet are gross. I don't care what culture you're in. Feet are intimate. You want me to prove it? Let's take off our shoes and everyone just touch the feet of your neighbor. No. (laughs) Maybe Jesus had better feet than most. She cries on his feet and she weeps over his feet and she wipes her hair over his feet. She kisses his feet and Jesus praises her activity. Jesus says, see, she gets forgiveness. She understands forgiveness. The one who is forgiven much loves much. And he doesn't push her off. He doesn't wipe off her kisses. He doesn't push her away. He doesn't say, ooh, get away from me. I want nothing to do with you. Instead, he praises her and uses her as a positive example for us to learn from. I don't care what version of sexual sin or sexual brokenness that you face. Shame will eat you alive. And it will isolate you. 
from the places where you can actually get help and love. And it feeds the lies that we rehearse all the time. The lies of shame. This is how it's always going to be. This will never change. You are unlovable. You are gross. You deserve punishment. You deserve isolation. No one will ever love you if they know the real you. Or another lie of shame. God is repulsed by who I am and what I do. Many people have wrongly believed that our sexual sin and brokenness is a barrier from God or a barrier to God. So we run further away from God in our shame and hopelessness. But Jesus reveals that our admitted brokenness and sin is not a barrier to God, but it's a bridge where God comes and draws near. He really can work in those places. This is one of the themes of the scripture, is that our brokenness in our life becomes an on-ramp toward intimacy with God. That God actually wants to pursue and draw into those places that you want to keep everyone away from. How does God feel about you? How does God feel about you? What's his heart for you? If you never overcame your particular sexual sin or your particular expression of sexual brokenness, if it was never fully resolved in this life, how would God feel about you? Does God only love the finished version of you or the fixed you? Again, how we answer these questions are fundamental to how we understand the gospel. Does God only love us when we are put together and quote, fixed. No. He loves us where we are. Romans says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Is Jesus repulsed by you? No. Was Jesus repulsed by this woman? Far from it. It was the Pharisee who kept saying those things. Jesus actually delights in drawing near to who you are. In fact, his love is the only thing that is strong enough to break your shame and to pull you out of the isolation where you're hiding. So maybe it's time for us to rethink shame. Maybe shame isn't the tool of God that we think it is. Which brings us to then this last theme I want to look at, which is desire. Desire. Sin, shame, desire. Most often you'll hear from Christians or pastors or sermons that the key to overcoming your sexual challenges is to clamp down your desires. Many people feel like their sexual drive or their sexual desires are too strong and too high. Man, I just want things so much that I can't have or shouldn't have. So like inadvertently, the message becomes, bottle your libido for Jesus. That's why many people, men and women, uh, use these familiar coping strategies. Accountability, more activity, and willpower. Meaning, what I need to do is to get some people around me who can hold me accountable, 
which in some circles turns into, let me just come and tell you how bad I did this week. Accountability, more activity, just get busy doing other things so you don't have to think about the thing that you shouldn't be thinking about or doing. And then willpower. Try harder. Just stop it. Stop that and start that. Just do something different, please. But the dirty little secret is accountability fails often because we're really good at deception. We deceive ourselves a lot and we can trick other people very easily. So I'm not saying it's worthless to be in accountability, but it depends on what kind of accountability you're in. A pile of activity fails, staying busy fails, because it ultimately doesn't change the inside. Along with willpower, you get tired, and we don't have enough willpower in the first place, and we feel like we need more. And so we literally, when it comes to a lot of our sexual challenges, become the beach ball underneath the pool water. You ever tried to hold the beach ball underneath the water before? Eventually, it just has to pop out somewhere. So, so much of the the sexual battle in Christian circles becomes clamp down, stuff it, seal it, dial it back, or more commonly, just ignore this, put this away, and hopefully it'll get better in time. But I think maybe the way of Jesus is a different way. Again, to quote some other dead people, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, says, the pursuit of purity is not about the suppression of lust, but about the reorientation of one's life to a larger goal. Or C.S. Lewis famously has said, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. What if the whole discussion around sexual desire is not just about, hey, can you need to dial it back and hold it down and clamp it down and shut it down, but rather that our desires would be set free but redirected. I think about this woman from Luke 7. Does Jesus dial her down? <laughs> oh. Like, I think this woman, who again... I believe has sin. I think she is sexually broken. If she indeed is a prostitute, has made a living for herself, selling her body to the men of the city. She's maybe given herself away countless numbers of times. But on this day, her expression of desire is not suppressed, but redirected. She's weeping, she's wiping her hair, she's kissing, she's anointing. She's actually more in tune with her emotions, her body, and her desires than most. It's being redirected toward Jesus. Intimacy is not her problem, but the object of her intimate expressions. And she, in this story, has finally found the one that her heart has been made for.
and that's Jesus. What if we've been settling? What if we actually are unaware of our own desires? That's why G.K. Chesterton once said that every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is knocking for God. And I would say the same for every affair, every porn addict, every act of sexual morality is a person who's actually looking, knocking, seeking for intimacy with God, looking for the truest form of love and intimacy and acceptance that he or she can find. It's just happening in a way that we're really unaware of. About a year ago or so, I was given a book about unwanted sexual behavior, and I really found it to be really helpful, and dare I say, even revolutionary. It's a book by a pastor and licensed mental health counselor named Jay Stringer. The title of the book is Unwanted. Here's the premise of his book. He asked the question, what if our unwanted sexual desires actually serve as a roadmap to a path of healing and transformation? He says, what if instead of trying to change from self-hatred, self-hatred for all that we've done and our inability to find freedom, what if instead of trying lust management and coping strategies that don't work, that we actually, in his words, listen to our lust, which I know is counterintuitive for many Jesus followers. Like, that's lust. It's bad. Throw it away. But again, it is wrong. It is sin. Throw it away and ignore it. No, no, no. Actually, he says, what if you actually need to listen to it because maybe your lust is telling you something about yourself. He says that lust is never random in our life. It's usually there because of something for a reason. It's from the parts of our story that we haven't engaged. And if we listen to our lust, we'll discover lots of stories that are waiting for engagement that we just ignore and push away. What are those places that we are most afraid of and most shameful of? What are they actually telling us? What's actually going on inside of us? Romans 12, 1 talks about being transformed by the renewing of our mind. But as he says in his book, you cannot renew your sexual mind if you don't know what's in there in the first place. So instead of just shoving our unwanted desires away, beating them, or the typical techniques of bouncing your eyes or more accountability or staying busy, what if we asked questions about why is this there in my life? And what is it telling me? Why am I so drawn to this? Chances are there are reasons as to why. As he writes, he says, healing is not just about simply saying no, it's about saying yes to the good, the true, and the beautiful. What if our sexual brokenness is the geography of God's arrival in those places? Because the God of the universe is not surprised by anything happening inside of you. I think that many of us have considered sexual brokenness and sexual sin from a skewed perspective. So, 
to all the sexual sinners in the room. To all the sexually broken, not living as God intended us to live. I offer you Jesus. Not as a trite solution, but I offer you the person of Jesus in the way that he wants to handle the stuff that we're most afraid and ashamed of. He says to this woman that your sins can be forgiven. That there's a way in the, there's a way in the life of Jesus for us to experience a life free from shame. And he's not asking us just to dam up our desire, but actually to redirect it toward him. In the history of humanity, covering every square inch of planet Earth, there's been only one sexually faithful human being. His name is Jesus. Being in the very nature God, he took on human flesh and he became a baby. Jesus was born as a sexed Jewish male who lived a full human life, endured every human temptation, remained sexually pure. He died on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins, and he was raised to life on the third day. And then many days after his resurrection, Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father where he waits. He waits for us. He waits for the day when he can come for his bride, a bride that he has purified through his blood. But Jesus is waiting for us as the faithful, perfect husband. He alone has the power to forgive. He alone removes guilt and alone can deal with our shame. And he's coming again one day where all things will be made right and everything in heaven and earth put together again and our bodies will receive their full redemption. So because of that, we're invited to be really honest now in real community to come back to him where he can do work of deep healing and change. How does God deal with the sexually broken? like this. Let me pray. Uh, Lord, I know that in this umbrella there are lots of people, lots of things, lots of questions, lots of complexities. But I'm thankful, Lord, of your care, your knowledge of us, your compassion toward us, your invitation to draw near, to not hide, to not have to just clamp things down, but to come honestly and freely to you. So Lord Jesus, I offer this group of people to you today. I offer myself before you today. And we are in need of your care. We are in need of your grace. We are in need of your forgiveness. We're in need of your healing. We're in need of being redirected back to you. And Lord, for many of us, it's taken decades of wounds and pain to get us to where we are. And so Lord, we need you to do that work that may take some time. So God, I pray that we would be a safe enough place 
to deal openly and honestly with the shame in our stories, the desires in our hearts, the sin that mars us, the brokenness that we live in. Again, would you do that work in me? Would you do that work in us? Because we believe that you are good. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.